so right about how long it rained. Because that's the, that's the normal answer we think of. We think, well, it rained 40 days and 40 nights, but he was on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights and stopped raining and got out of it, right? But it's actually, he was actually on there longer. Uh, the, the Bible tells us that if you add all of it, all it up and, and kind of look at what it says about when, it's, when it started and when he finally got off, that he was, no one knows exactly, but he was on the boat probably somewhere between 360 and 380 days with all the animals locked up on the boat. In fact, it tells us that he was on the boat seven days before it even started raining. So you got to imagine that Noah had some questions during that, that time. Wait a second, isn't it supposed to, something's supposed to happen? Why are we on this boat with all, this, all these animals? It was seven days before it even started raining. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. You're exactly right. And then the waters kept rising and it covered the mountains. And Kyle was talking about that last week. It covered the mountains and it went up even further. And then finally it started coming down and God made it with sea. But 360 days, 370, 380 days on the ark, trapped up. And just think about what, what would you have done when you finally walked off? When the door finally opened and God said, yeah, it's okay, the land's dry enough, what's the first thing that you would have done when you walked off of that boat? Just you. I mean, there's a, there's a big list, right? I mean, let's be honest, Noah's wife had a lot of time to make the honey do this on that boat. Uh, they're starting over. Everything's starting over. We've got to find some place to live. We've got to start growing some vegetables because I'm sick of this other food. Like, we got to, there's a, a whole big plan that needs to be executed when you walk off that boat and you're starting completely over. But the first thing Noah does is he worships. He saw it in the verse, verse 20. So we started reading in chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart. So the first thing Noah does, with all the other things he could have, he could have run past this moment. He builds an altar and he worships God for, as a way of thanking God, as a way of saying, God, you provided for us, you rescued us, you, you spared us. The first thing on Noah's mind, the first thing on his agenda, the first thing on his list when he walks off that boat is to worship God in response to God's provision. And so as you're looking at the story, we've been looking at the story of Noah and the, and the flood and the ark and all these different things. As you look at the story, you make some observations about that based on what you see. And the first observation, the observation that we can make today is that worship is a response to God. That worship is... It's first and foremost a response to God. It's, it's big picture. Worship is us responding to who God is. It's seeing God and His greatness and His glory and His majesty and knowing how holy He is, knowing how eternal He is, knowing how powerful He is, and we worship Him as, as a response to that. God has revealed who He is to us in the Bible, and when we see God for who He is and we see what He's done, we worship Him in response to that. So worship is a response to God, just His character, just but it's also a, a proper response to God's provision. That when God provides for us, when God rescues us, when God delivers us, when God answers prayer for us, that worship is our response. It's that acknowledgement that God, everything good comes from you. 
So we worship him in response to him. And you see that Noah worships him and then uses this uh, language that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the offering. He knows that Noah is expressing this thanksgiving. He's expressing this worship. He's expressing this devotion to God. And God is pleased with that worship. And it echoes what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. It's a verse that may be familiar to many of you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God, pleasing to God to be a living sacrifice. And he says, which is your spiritual worship? So what Paul says is our worship is when we live our lives for God, when we become a living sacrifice, when we lay down our lives and say, God, my life is yours. That is a spiritual act of worship. Worship is one element, one expression of it is when we sing corporately together, but ultimately worship is this picture of us living for Him in every possible way. And Paul says that's a spiritual act of worship. It's holy and acceptable to God. And then at the beginning of that verse, he says it's by the mercies of God. Or the NIV translates it in view of God's mercy. But it's understanding who God is and understanding what He's done for us produces a response of worship that we worship Him in response to His mercy, in view of His mercy, in light of what Jesus has done for us, that God has spared us because of Jesus' death on the cross, His mercy displayed for us on the cross. We worship Him with our lives. That worship is a response. That's what it is. It's, it's expressing gratitude in this moment for what God has done. And I think this is a really important observation for us in our culture because we're not a very thankful culture. It just seems like in our culture, it's more popular to be critical than to be grateful. We, we, we lean that way as a culture. We just kind of continually gravitate towards finding the negative, finding the things that are wrong, finding the criticism and everything, and we push away from the gratitude for all the good stuff, for all the blessings. And we, can, we can miss those. We can... All, almost as if we're ignoring the blessings to highlight the negative and we forget to be grateful. We forget that everything good that God has in our lives, and there's a lot of it. That old hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. It's, a, it's almost a never-ending task when you stop and think about it. It's, it's reminding us that God has blessed us abundantly in so many ways. We need to press into that. But we run past that, don't we? Just like Noah could have run past his gratitude in that moment with the, the task list. Oh, I gotta do this now, I gotta do this now. Yes, we made it, that's great, but I've got a lot to do to reestablish civilization. I've got a house to build, tent to put up. And we, in our culture, it just seems like we run past that. Jesus told the story in Luke chapter 17 about these ten lepers. Probably familiar with that story. The ten lepers came to him because they knew he had power. They knew he could heal. He was healing lots of different people. And they came and they found Jesus and they begged him for mercy. They begged him for healing. And Jesus looked at those ten lepers and he gave them one simple instruction. He said, go show yourself to the priest. But you have to understand what he's saying is for a leper to be declared cleansed, he had to show himself, prove it to the priest. The priest would then declare him to be cleansed and he could enter back into normal society. So Jesus looks at him. He doesn't say you're healed. He doesn't do some kind of magical incantation. He just says, go show yourself to the priest. And so they turn around and they start to walk away. And as they get down the road on the journey, all of a sudden, instantly, they're all ten are healed. They're lepers. And in the story, 
Jesus, um, well, the writer of Luke is telling us the story. The story is one of those lepers turned back and went back and found Jesus and fell into his feet again for worship. And we're all sitting there going, what about the other, the other guys? What about the nine other ones? And Jesus wonders the same thing. It's kind of interesting because Jesus looks at the one and he says, wait a second. Weren't there ten of you guys? Weren't the other nine healed as well? Where are they? And we don't understand that, right? We're, we're the one leper. We're like, yeah, Jesus, you've healed me. I'm worshiping you. I mean, you've, you've carved out your time this morning to do that, to come and worship him and acknowledge he's the giver of all good things. And that's why we're here. That's why we gather together. But man, so many times I find myself just like the other nine, and I rush past Thanksgiving. I rush past gratitude. God delivers me. He answers a prayer, and I'm like, oh, good. Now I can do this because God finally did that. Now I can do this. And I just move past it too quickly and too easily. No wonder if we're all like that. That we just don't. Like, it feels like there's two mistakes that we make when we need something from God. One mistake is on the front end. When we need something and we think, well, I can figure this out. I can send an email. I can do this. I can make a phone call. I can connect with somebody. We do it on our own. We don't go to Him first. We go to God last. God is our last resort. When we just I've done everything I can. I guess I better go to God now. So we make that mistake of not being dependent upon Him. But He wants us to depend upon Him. He wants us to trust in Him and rely on Him and go to Him first. But it seems like on the other side, when God finally answers, when God does what only God can do, that we don't really worship Him in response. We don't take the moment and take the time to really highlight, God, you did this. You, you, you accomplished this. And in our Bibles in the Old Testament, you see God do things for them, and they would pile up rocks and make some kind of memorial. They did it all the time. He got up through to cross the Jordan, and they made a big rock pile. So that the, the point of it was that every time they would walk past that pile of rocks, and they would see that particular group of rocks, they would remember God's faithfulness, and they would remember to worship God. They would remember to give Him thanks. That, to, to honor him. So every time he passed one of those piles of rocks somewhere, it was a reminder that God is the provider. God is the rescuer. God is the one who delivers. And every time he passed that, they would have this reminder, don't move past Thanksgiving. Don't move past worship. We need to do that. We need to pile up some rocks and make sure that we are focused in on what God has done and we're worshiping him in response to that. So maybe that doesn't look like a literal pile of rocks, but maybe it, it looks like something else. Maybe it looks like you journaling and you, you constantly have something to go back to and you're looking in your journal and seeing God's provision and God's answer all the time. In our culture, I think sometimes it looks like storytelling. To get your kids around the dinner table, your kids at bed, bedtime and they don't want to go to sleep, and you tell stories of God's faithfulness. You highlight Hey, God did this for us. There was this time in my life I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know I needed help here. And God was obviously orchestrating events and circumstances to bring me to this place. But we need to tell these stories of God's faithfulness as an act of worship, as an act of thanksgiving. It should be built into our culture. It should be built into our DNA spiritually to point to God and worship Him in response to His provision, which is if we think about it, it's why we pray before we start meals, isn't it? We, we start a meal and somebody says, hey, who's going to say the blessing? And we, sometimes we'll even ask, we say, somebody needs to ask God to bless the, bless the food. 
But I don't think that's really what it is. Because I don't, I don't think we really expect God to be able to turn that pizza into something nutritious. Right? God's blessing with food. Oh, yeah, this pizza's going to make me strong and healthy. That's, that's what's going to happen. No, I think what we're doing is we're just acknowledging God's the good giver of all good things. That we're acknowledging everything comes from Him. That we stop before we eat. We gather around and hold hands, whatever it is, around the table. And we say, look, God, we're going to thank you. And you provide every good thing in our lives. We're going to provide that. You provided that, we're going, to, we're going to provide you thanksgiving and response. We're going to focus in on responding to God and worship. So that's a good practice and a good habit. But don't let that be the only one. Pile up some rocks. Make sure there's some family memorial type things where you point to God's faithfulness and remember that worship is a response to God. And, you know, I was thinking about this when I was even talking to Kai. Kai's a psychology major. And uh, he said that in psychology, he learned that gratitude is actually a scientific study now. And gratitude has been linked to happiness. That the more grateful you are, it's scientifically been studied and verified, the happier you will be. And I thought I was probably wrong with that, so I checked it out myself. And he was right. And it, the study's going on since Kai was in college a few years ago. That, that it's been linked to all kinds of stuff. It's been linked to health. But the more grateful you are, the chances are you're going to be actually healthier. There's, there's scientific data to back that up. To a general, general better quality of life is linked to gratitude. The more grateful we are, the more thankful we are, the more benefits just practically that we have. And I was thinking about that. I was remembering a book that my wife read a few years ago that I haven't read, but like, I grabbed it off the shelf, and she had just highlighted so much stuff in there, so I, I know it's good. And I was, I was just looking at it, and I looked at some of the highlights of this last night. And I, I want to recommend it to you for you summer readers that are looking for some, something to read. And I wish, you know, we don't have our screens here. I talked about that. Everything's at camp. Camp wins. And so I, I was like, well, how am I going to show this book today? And so I brought two screens for you. I brought my daughter and her twin cousin. That's what they call themselves. Gloria, Olivia, you're, you're kind of matching today. Bring the book up here and stand up here. It's left and right screen real fast. And one of you hold the screen here, not the screen, hold the book right here. Olivia, you stand over here. Hold the book up, because people like to take pictures of what's on the screen, so that you might want to smile. This is from the left side. This is the book Choosing Gratitude uh, by Nancy DeMoss. And it's fantastic. It talks about worship and gratitude and how you can choose that and the joy that comes with it. And pass this over to the right screen. So everybody can see it over here if you just want to get a picture of the screen. So this, I, I recommend this book. I need to read this book, and it would be a great summer reading. Thank you, thank you, ladies, for doing that for us real fast. We, we had some screens, so Watkins, we figured it out. And they clapped. Nobody ever claps on the regular screen. That's all. <laughs> we might next week, but that's all good. Worship. Our response to God's provision. Don't rush past it. Noah didn't rush past it with all the things he could have been doing. And so let's don't be a people that rush past that worship. And the, the rest of the story, I think, when we start to see us and back to the, what we talked about a lot, it tells us some things about God. It reminds us of some things about God. As he unfolds his plan for Noah and his three sons and their family. And the first thing I think that we see in the story is that this truth that we've talked about many times, and just, you can really never say it enough, and that is that God gives new beginnings. 
that our God is the author of new starts, new beginnings, fresh starts. It's never too late for a new start with God. You're never, you're never so far away that you can't come back. God is the God of new beginnings. And so here in the verse when uh, God blesses Noah in verse 1 of chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We've heard that phrase before, right? We've heard that phrase when he told Adam and Eve, this is your cultural mandate. Here's what you're going to do in the earth. You're going to be fruitful and you're going to multiply. And so he's giving a restart of creation to Noah. Everybody else is wiped out. He's starting over with Noah and his family. So he gives them the same that mandate. He gives them the same idea. You're going to harness the natural world. You're going to develop and cultivate the social world. You're going to do that. You're going to be fruitful and multiply. And so he starts everything over with Noah by using the exact same terminology. Because why? Because our God is the God of the beginning. That he gives fresh starts. And so he's going to give that protection over Noah. He's going to give him dominion over the animals that we saw him give Adam and Eve. There's so many similarities to the creation story here because God is literally starting over with Noah and his family. And so we're not getting all the way through this today. Chapter 10, it gives us another genealogy. And the genealogies, there's a lot of different reasons for that. We went through a whole sermon on the genealogies, and we're not going to take time to do another sermon on the genealogy because I feel like we've covered that. But one of the things it does is just telling us how the people were doing what God had told them to do. That they were being fruitful and they were multiplying, they were filling the earth. The population was growing because people were doing that. People were getting married and having babies, and the population continued to grow. And so that's going to be a part of the story, just as it was earlier, that God starts over, be, fruit, be fruitful, multiply, and people began to do that, and Noah's generations were traced all the way to Abraham in chapter 10. So God gives new beginnings. And we, we need to remember that, because we need to highlight that. We need to, we need to constantly talk about that. When you start wandering away, and you mess up, and you think, oh man, I, I've blown it as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a, as a worker, as whatever. And God is always there to you. He's the God of that. He's, he's starting something new all the time. You see it all throughout Scripture. Revelation 21.5, at the end, he says, I'm making all things new. It's kind of what he's doing there at that moment, but it's kind of just a characteristic that we see in God. God makes all things new, continually doing that for us. Psalm 43, he puts a new song in our mouths. Many times you think you come to the end and then God gives you a new song. He gives you a new reason to worship. He does something new in your life. A new reason to sing. Ezekiel 11, 19. I'm going to put a new spirit in them. I'm going to take the heart of stone out. I'm going to the heart of flesh. He's doing a new work in us continually. Continually starting over for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Anyone who is in Christ is therefore a new creation. Starting over. God making all things new. God is the God of the new beginning. We, we see that in the story. And we lean into that. We embrace that because it's that gives us hope and encouragement all the time. Another thing that you see in this passage about God is that he's a God who makes and keeps promises. God makes and keeps promises. And those of you that have been here for a while, you know that these are the kind of things that would normally be on the screens. And just so you'll know, Emily and Nicole on our, on our team here, they, they post our notes. The things that we put on the screens are always posted on our uh, on the web. And so that link will be there this week through social media for you to find these things that you know. Saying that this is the kind of the focus point here. God makes and 
Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth, and as many as came out of the ark, for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God makes a promise here. It's called a covenant. He's entered into a covenant relationship. Here's my promise, God says, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to destroy the earth again. I'm never going to wipe it out with a flood like this again. If you look back at the beginning of this in verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma in chapter 8, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. He's making that promise in his heart, and then he verbalizes in the covenant in chapter 9. But look back at the last part of verse 21. So the Lord says in heart, I will never give curse to ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And that to me is really important. Because here's what God is saying. I'm never going to destroy the earth again. I'm never going to wipe it out with a flood. Why did he do that? Because the sin problem was out of control. And he says, I'm never going to do it again. And then he says, because I know that the intention of every man's heart Sin survived the flood. We know that, right? God's not saying, I'm never going to do this again because I wiped out sin in that big flood. Now, sin survived. Adam's ancestries traced right to Noah. And Noah is a righteous man. And he found favor in God's eyes, but he has a sin problem, just like all of us have a sin problem. In fact, I'm not going to really spend a lot of time here, but right after where we stopped reading today, you find Noah drunk naked in his tent, which I'm just telling you, that's never a good story. <laughs> that's never like, oh, that was a really good holy moment. That was, that's not what that is. Like sin survived, and God is fully aware, and he knows that we have a sin problem, that our sin is offensive to a holy God, and every intention of our heart is evil, is what it says here. God's words. He says, but I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to destroy you again. In fact, what God is saying is, I'm going to move towards people from here on out with grace and mercy. God makes promises and he keeps promises. And what he tells us here is that those promises are not dependent upon us. It's a covenant God enters into with us and makes promises that he's going to keep no matter what we do. He knows we're going to mess this up. He knows Noah's descendants are going to have kids, and their kids are going to have kids, and their kids are going to have kids, and they're all going to mess this thing up completely all over again. God says, but I'm not going to do this. I'm promising that I'm going to move towards them in mercy and grace. This is the thing Kai was talking about last week. This psychology and this foreshadowing to the cross that God is going to not destroy us, but ultimately he's going to rescue us through his son Jesus by moving towards us with mercy and grace. That God makes and keeps His promises. Another observation I think that you make here is that God always remembers. He remembers the promises He makes. That's why He keeps them. Now we didn't read this, but in the very first verse of chapter 8, it says that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with Him in the ark. And then God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. So it's this idea that the flood has kind of run its course. And Noah and those, his family, all the animals have been in the ark for hundreds of days. And says, God remembered Noah and the animals. 
So that's an interesting way to say that. And then in verse, in chapter 9, it talks about the bow, the rainbow that God sets. Verse 13, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, look at verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all, all flesh. So God says, I'm going to put my rainbow in the, in the sky. And when there's clouds, when there's rain, you can see the rainbow. And God says, when I see the bow, I'm going to remember my covenant. I'm going to remember my promise. And so it's kind of weird to think about, did God forget about them floating out there in the flood? And then he remembered not what the Bible's talking about at all. And the Bible uses the word remembers. It's not the way we remember. We, we say it. it we, we usually use the word remember saying it's something I had previously forgot but now recall. Oh yeah, I remember that now. I'd forgotten it. That's not what the Bible's talking about. When the Bible uses the word remembers, it means this. It means that he is acting on our behalf. It's him fulfilling a promise and paying attention to or focusing on. So here's the floods going on, and Noah and the family and the animals have been on the ark for all these days, and it says God remembers, and so put that in that context. All of a sudden, God points his attention and focus directly on Noah. All of a sudden, God's time has come to fulfill the promise, and make the land dry again, and start over with Noah. He's going to act on behalf, that remembering is him acting on behalf of Noah. So then he says, I'm going to put the rainbow on and it will, I'll remember that I'm not going to destroy the earth again. And I hope I see a rainbow. It starts raining a lot, we don't have one. Will God forget? God saying that rainbow is a reminder to you that I'm acting on your behalf, that I'm fulfilling my promise, that I'm focusing my attention. The remembering is really for us. God puts a sign in the sky so that we will be reminded every time we see it that God's not going to destroy us an incredible sign. It's a beautiful sign. It should be something that kind of gets us excited. You see a rainbow, you should get excited thinking about how God fulfills His promise to us. You see a double rainbow, you should get so crazy and make a viral It should be amazing to see that. It's a great sign, a reminder of God's faithfulness. But we have it better. Oh, my God. 
son dying in our place on the cross. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for your love demonstrated to us all throughout the scripture. Every story, every page, it reminds us of your faithfulness, it reminds us of your love, it reminds us of your mercy, it reminds us of your now, I want to thank you for the ultimate expression of that, that is the cross. Jesus taking our place, taking the punishment, absorbing your wrath so that we can be part of your family eternally. God, we thank you for that today. We worship you in response to that today. We worship you because you provided in every way all good things, but we worship you because ultimately you provided our only hope for this life and one to come. That was answered for us forever. In Jesus on the cross. God, I pray that you allow us to worship as we take the Lord's Supper and we look at that sign and as we sing the truth of you being the rock of ages.